0: Welcome to Scrappy ABM, your source for groundbreaking approaches that don't break the bank. ABM shouldn't cost 200K in tech to even get started. So if you want to get started with ABM or make your program even better without investing a massive amount of money, you're in the right place. Each week, we'll hear from the brightest minds in the marketing world who are redefining ABM, achieving incredible results with untraditional methods, limited resources, and a whole lot of creativity. This isn't a show about how much money you can spend on fancy tech or overhyped tools. Instead, it's about celebrating creative problem solving and the scrappiness it takes to get ABM right. We'll dive into how these marketing leaders built robust ABM strategies with limited resources, revealing the actionable insights that led to their biggest wins. So if you're a marketer ready to challenge the status quo and build a scalable, efficient, effective marketing strategy, Scrappy ABM is the show for you. So, if you're ready to discover ABM strategies that are lean, impactful, and utterly transformative, let's dive into this episode.
1: Mason, hello.
0: Hey, Carrie.
1: Uh, paternity leave. Welcome back. Thank you. Day four. Day three. Day. Uh,
0: day two. I got back Wednesday. Day two.
1: Day so. two. How's it feel? A little in the swing. A little uh, out of your groove.
0: Digging out of an inbox, um, catching up on everything that's been done thus far in the month of August because I, I work at a small company called Sales Assembly that does sales enablement for the go-to-market team. And, uh, you know, small Scrappy companies, a lot changes in the course of a month. So uh, just getting up to speed and then figuring out, all right, how do we hit these goals for the rest of the year? So excited to chat through some of those things and uh, chat through kind of the concept of Scrappy ABM, which I've been evangelizing a lot over the past Feels like a couple of years, but really the term scrappy ABM came to me about five months ago. So excited to chat.
1: Doubling down. Doubling down. I love it. And we're gonna, we're gonna unpack it and it's gonna be great. Um I gotta say the pictures of of you and baby together is just been such a treat. It's like I think we've all missed you while you've been on, but also like haven't missed you because we get these like gems that end up in our LinkedIn feeds of Mason with baby. Oh, God, she's so cute. She is. Uh, She may end up making a
0: guest appearance if I can swing it, but we'll see.
1: Well, that is for our listeners to want to hang on so that that they can see that happen. It's going to be great. Tell us your story, Mason. You're now at Sales Assembly, but how did you get there?
0: Yes. I mean, long story short, um, started a career in sales uh, selling print advertising, which, as you might imagine, was super fun. Um, and from there, uh, little thing called COVID hit. So after uh, doing print ads, I, uh, which to give you context, yes, I was selling print ads in 2019, 2020. So clearly up to date with all the things. Um, but essentially when COVID hit, I I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't land a job. I couldn't do anything to save my life and, uh, really just dove all in on digital marketing. And if you go look at my LinkedIn, there is not Graduation, but quite literally 64 different certifications that I've taken um, because I, there's so much great information available on the internet. Um, but yeah, from there landed in a FinTech company, helped the implementation of Salesforce, Pardot built out this full marketing strategy uh, and for better and for worse, they were a very legacy industry. So I learned a lot, um, but also recognized I, I want to go somewhere where I can really grow and learn. So that's where I think my career really is. Um, Took shape and pretty significantly uh I grew personally so I recommend to almost any marketer um, doing a stint in an agency um, you just learn so much so quickly um because a lot of a lot of marketing today is a lot of internal advocacy for what marketing should be doing whereas in most cases when you're in, in an agency uh, there's already at least general buy-in so it's less how do I argue to do the right things and more of just doing the right things so I uh, spent two years at a company called Mojo Media Labs. In the the midst of that two-year stint, we ended up getting acquired by a company called Gravity Global. So went from a 25-person boutique agency that focused on ABM to uh, the world's most awarded B2B agency and ran marketing and sales for the account-based marketing division. Uh, And really, again, I think I owe most of everything that I know about actually effective marketing to that two-year stint in the agency space. Uh, And then, as we've alluded, there's this beautiful little girl that I now have. Um, So I ended up, as much as I loved my agency stint, uh, working in a global agency meant a lot of uh, international travel sometimes. So uh, I wanted to be more present at home and as a result have transitioned into a company called Sales Assembly where, um, again, if you've picked anything up already, I'm a big fan of learning, I'm a big fan of growing yourself And that's what Sales Simply offers is specific sales enablement, skill development training for the entire go-to-market team in the B2B tech space. We work with about 150 different clients, um, helping them up-level their sales and CS teams. So that is my story in a nutshell and what brings me here today.
1: I have so many questions. Let's start with, um, you mentioned there was a couple of resources. You took every... Uh, qualification under the sun during COVID, what were like your highlights of, yeah. oh, I wish I knew this two years ago.
0: Um. Well, for starters, uh, I wish I'd asked more questions of what certifications I should be taking uh, because as much as there's so much available information on the internet, there's also a lot of uh, misinformation on the internet or not even misinformation, but uh, playbooks that may have worked five years ago, but I don't know if you've looked, there's a lot that's changed in the past five years. So that's why I personally love HubSpot Academy. Um, HubSpot provides a lot of fantastic training, but also their most popular courses are updated every two years. So HubSpot is typically pretty up to date on a lot of things. Admittedly, they, there are some things that may be a little bit more legacy, but that's okay. Um, it, I think it's a fantastic resource. Additionally, specific when, specifically when it comes to account-based marketing, I uh, would be Demandbase. So Demandbase has a number of certifications. Um, that normally costs some money. I've actually been seeing a fair number of ads recently that they're giving away their go-to-market strategist certification for free, which is a $400 value. I'm not paid or sponsored. Uh, I've just taken a fair number of demand-based certifications and those are super, super helpful. Um, and then the final thing is like, those are free resources, but I'm also a big proponent of, um, where necessary going for a paid resource so for example i became what is called a story brand certified guide i think that changed my life and um, there's there's no exaggeration on that like i got connected to a community of marketers i learned so much from that community of marketers um and then the just the training that i got that was i mean it was a four-day intensive but then weekly continued training and education with more senior tenured marketers i i think that that Certification in and of itself provided me literally the acceleration of 10 years on my career. So it was an investment and there's no way around that, but I would not be in my career where I am today or the marketer that I am today without some of those investments. So again, if you're looking to get started, go free, but eventually, um, buying a certification. is just buying knowledge and we're knowledge-based workers. So you have to actually understand and learn and the best way to do that. And the best knowledge is typically given through some kind of a paywall.
1: I mean, it's the same as going to college, just in a different format in some degree. I would poke them, poke them buttons here. But I mean, now this day and age of, it depends. If you want to be a teacher, a lawyer, or a doctor, you gotta go to you gotta go to college. But like for what we do, and for how much information is out there, to your point, I mean those are three solid resources on how to really stand up your career. And I'm a big I'm a big story brand person. Donald Miller, he knows what's up. Yep. Um, and I also read the book and. Uh, dove in deep. I didn't get the certification, which is interesting to hear from you that you did. So what about that in particular felt, was it the fact that you got a certification in StoryBrand or was it, or was it, there something specific in regards to how they taught or what they taught in the four day sort of deep dive? Like what was it for you that felt so game changing?
0: Yeah, for me, I, I bought confidence um, because I went through, StoryBrand has a Online platform that's two hundred twenty-five dollars a year, so I think relatively exp- or inexpensive from that perspective. Um, they've got a lot of great content in there, but there's no feedback loop. So I'm just sitting in my living room with on-demand content that you know could be good, but could also be garbage. I have no one telling me if it's good or bad or um, really anything around it. And what the yeah. certification provided was two things: one, I got live training from the expert himself, Donald Miller, and submitted my work and. Uh, there was granted it was right before lunch break. So I don't know how much to, uh, to take credit for this, but he looked at what I submitted and reviewed it in front of 80 other people and said, there's actually not a single change I would make to this. This was perfect. Now granted again, right before lunch. So maybe he just wanted to get out for lunch, but all that to say about confidence that I know what I'm doing. And then the other piece to it is I did white labeled work for other story brand certified guides. Um, because in my day job, sometimes there are things that you just can't push forward. And again, there's mm-hmm. more layers of approval um, depending on the organization in which you work. Um, often outside consultants are listened to more because a marketer internally becomes the profit in their own town and kind of becomes noise. So from that perspective, right. by being able to white label for other people, I developed significant conviction around the things that I know work because I was able to, without any back and forth or internal. Again, that's why I recommend the agency stint because you can just execute more quickly. And then again, because as a young marketer, if you've only taken certifications, you're only doing what you think will work. But if you've never done it and you've never gotten the results, you don't have conviction around it. So what the StoryBrand Guide community gave me was the opportunity to truly execute without having to argue about what we should or shouldn't be doing. I just executed. I generated revenue for clients. And I was like, oh, I'm actually good at this. I know what I'm doing. So that's what the certification provided me, not not the badge, that doesn't really matter. Um what matters is that I have confidence and conviction in what I'm doing. Oh my
1: gosh. I love that. And I I having grown up in agency world and actually then creating an agency myself, I totally agree that there's this level of initially like coming in and being able to say this is what we know to work and this is why and here's all of the historical knowledge we have across multiple clients to prove that versus being a single marketer bouncing from brand to brand and trying to like sell that in it is a different experience. And I do, it is a bit sink or swim depending on what agency you go to. I think we talked about this in the marketing yeah. ladder when I joined you. Um, it can be really grueling, but man, the the life experience you get from those first few years at an agency is certainly game changing. So yeah, I agree, totally agree there. In terms of a challenge you're currently having, you're getting back in the swing, you just had a big girl. Um, is that really what's feel, what you're feeling right now? Or is there another challenge that you feel like you're facing?
0: I mean, I think every marketer is facing the challenge of um, a couple of different things. One, it's not as easy to sell this year as it was last year or the year before. Um, so even in that context of things that were working, aren't right now. So as much as I have conviction around specific things, I'm like, I know that this will pay off in the long term. Um, a, a drum that I've been beating right now, and for a lot of marketers, is yes, like brand building is absolutely necessary in the long term, but the long term doesn't get here if we don't deliver in the short term. Mm-hmm. So as much as yes, I'm going to go build all the brand, and I want to do all the, like, f- for lack of a word, like fun brand activation activities. Like I have a pipeline goal that I've got to meet. And if we are not hitting our pipeline goal and not even just from a pipeline goal perspective, if our pipeline isn't converting into actual revenue, you don't get the right to build the brand. So I know, again, I know, and all the data suggests Mm -hmm. that for long-term scalability, brand building delivers a greater return on investment in the long-term. Without it's question, yeah, but you, you have to have the appropriate level of sales activation to then build out the brand. So one of the challenges that I'm currently working through is, you know, I've been with sales assembly for f- six months. The One of those months I was on paternity leave. So really I had five months of execution. I think for the first two and a half to three months, it's really focused on brand building because in 2021 and 2022, that's where I focused my efforts. And I mean, it delivered but it delivered in about month 10. So let's put it, mm-hmm. like, let's call it what it is. Um, whereas now we're, again, really six months in, it's working, like we've, we're generating more inbound pipeline, but the, the pipeline is stalling. The pipeline is um, not closing at the same rate in which we would expect from an inbound pipe. So what I'm looking at are essentially, currently, what are the, repeatable sales activation plays that I can do based off of third party intent data or first party intent data and engagement data to then understand how do I deliver to our sales team 20 a week. So I don't want to do hundreds. I don't want to do thousands, but, but I even want, 20
1: feels wealthy. I feel
0: good. I feel good about 20 from the sources that we've got, and I can explain some of those different sources. Um, but again, from, from my perspective, if I can deliver 20 a week, and again, those 20 are right fit engage people where there's a clear reason to reach out i i would anticipate that we could convert probably again that's 80 a, 80 a month we could probably convert 10% 15% into a booked meeting and again if our goal oh, for okay. the month is booking 30 calls a month 35 if i can create repeatable sales activation plays that we do on a month in a month out basis that deliver half of it then we can work on other ways, like for example, building brand that then delivers and that we weren't even targeting. Um, looking at referral programs and partner programs. Like there are other ways w- where we can get it. Where I'm really focused right now is what are the repeatable sales activation plays that we can do that are a little bit scrappy and we can talk about scrappy ABM through this. Mm-hmm. But
1: We're again, to.
0: looking at what are the things that we can build that will deliver on some level of a consistent basis, some meetings. So I think that transitions as yep. well into Scrappy ABM.
1: I think it does. I do want to say that we're all sort of feeling the same thing. It's there, There's a big shift back to brand that everybody's feeling from, from multiple conversations I've been having. And it's the the time it takes to do and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how, how Scrappy AVM can play into that. So you're not alone in knowing that brand is the way, but also like no time to waste. Real quick story, I had a meeting today actually, and I showed them like the ideal journey of the things we would do to really make sure that they have their foundation situated to building into their website to then activate the channels. And they're like, we yes to foundation, we agree that that's important, however, given our budget like we really need that website piece right can we skip to that and what does that look like and can we do that a bit quote unquote scrappier to get there and then build back into it so everyone's sort of feeling like there's got to be a way to sort of hit the ground running knowing that we need to then backtrack a bit and then build up so yes yes to that in terms of abm we've been, we've mentioned this acronym now multiple times in my my initial briefing of what this thing was to our to our build up here tell us mason for our listeners what abm means to you um in how you think about it
0: yeah so before we do that i'm going to bring in a special ah! quick guest
1: hey! Oh, my
0: gosh. Anybody that's watching. She's she's very cute. And she's going to be probably the world's best marketer. So anyway, now for account-based marketing.
1: Thank you. Oh, thank you. She's amazing.
0: So for account-based marketing, um, I'm going to steal the definition that I had for my former employer. So it is a B2B growth strategy that aligns marketing and sales around a set of shared target accounts. So what I hate about account-based marketing as a term is that it's called account-based marketing as opposed to account-based strategy. Um, You've seen other organizations try to implement like account-based strategy or account-based sales or account-based experiences. And it's like, they don't resonate as well. Like ABM is the term um, and that's fine. But at at the end of the day, it's actually more of a growth strategy between marketing and sales. Um, To answer the question for people that are thinking, well, what is account-based experiences? I view that as the inclusion of the success team so you actually have a true full funnel account-based approach from beginning to end from awareness into acquisition into retention and expansion. So that's ABM in its core.
1: The way you described it makes it feel like because you have all of these systems, marketing, sales, and success, that it's generally built for bigger companies who have these three things, correct?
0: Generally speaking, yeah. The I was talking with another individual earlier today that was exploring account-based platforms and they're kind of the the associated i don't know stigma around account-based marketing is that it's incredibly expensive um because yes you've got these three different organizations or you've got a fully established marketing team and a fully established sales team um and then on top of that in order to implement account-based marketing oh you have to have an abm platform obviously and those range from 60 to two hundred thousand dollars a year um and that's just for the ABM platform, not to mention also the data enrichment platform and the intent data and the gifting platform and all of that combined. I mean, you're, you're looking at anywhere from about 150 to 250, sometimes upwards of 300 in annual costs for technology to build an account-based program. So again, at that point, people are like, oh, cool. I'll never do ABM because I don't, I don't have the budget to implement $300,000 in just technology Not to mention additional headcount, not to mention potential agencies, not to potential or not to mention additional just like bandwidth on your existing team and deprioritizing other things that may be working okay to prioritize something that you haven't proven yet. So that's, that's where people really tend to think and land on account-based marketing.
1: Is it though? Like that's, so coming back to being scrappy, right? And... I mean, do you need all of those things to be successful It's in the range, right? So you mentioned 60 to 200K is a huge range. There's definitely certain tech stacks you can build in there, depending on what you need of like gifting versus just a basic CRM. But like, um,
0: no, the answer is no, like, you don't need that. Right. So
1: um, what does scrapping mean to you? Yeah. So from my
0: perspective, It is leveraging what you have today and focusing on the fundamentals and the actual strategy in and of itself and building the appropriate foundation for an account-based focus. Um, It's cheesy, it's corny, but I can't think of another way to say it of like account-based marketing is not necessarily even a strategy. It's more of a mindset of how do I shift from I want to go after as many leads and let me hit all the right numbers Knowing that if I engaged 3,000 people with this email sequence, I might have a 1% response rate that would then convert at 5% into a meeting. So after that all shakes out, I've got like literally less than like two meetings for sending out 3,000 emails, which again, if you look at some of the recent data, granted, forgive dad brain, um, it was before Pat Lee, but I mean, something to the extent of like outreach put out, something of like of automated emails are getting even a response. So again, from that perspective, it's just not working if you have all of this lead focused approach. What works far better is saying, who is our best fit customer? How many customers do we need to close this year? And how do we then identify, not one to one, but maybe like one to three, and say, if we need to close 100 customers this year, how do we intentionally and specifically engage 300 accounts with the intent that we would close a third? that's a very different approach than I'm going to go after 30,000 accounts and see what shakes out.
1: Let's talk about um, accounts for a second. We keep saying the word accounts and you mentioned it in terms of sales enablement and having sales and marketing aligned around specific accounts. But what is account there's we're, we're throwing these terms out accounts and leads, right? They're two different things.
0: Yes. So, um, when we think about a lead, typically that is an individual. So for the case of sales assembly, um, I am trying to specifically bring in CROs of B2B tech companies that are typically in the scale-up stage. So then not necessarily full-on startup, but they are at the point where they've got product market fit and they are growing their teams and need the additional skill training to help those teams grow. So If I focus on the individual and I have a a persona that is that, and I then go after every single one of the companies that are B2B tech, scale up, CRO, that's it. That's my criteria. Those would all be individual leads. So I'm only going after the CRO. Um, And even from that perspective, like if I only think about creating content, so if we want to take it from the inbound approach of like, if I only think about creating content and focusing every single thing that i do on just the cro of b2b tech companies that scale up stage organizations that's that's a lead focused approach whereas in reality no one in b2b makes a decision on their own unless they're very teeny tiny and like are just a founder in most cases you're engaging a decision making committee and on that committee there are people that are the decision maker like the actual budget holder that can say yes, like I'm good with this. You've got people that are key influencers that need to be bought in. You've got end users that have to use the product or use the service. And you have what are called blockers and this is your standard, uh, the CF no. So from that perspective, you need to engage all of those different people within the buying committee to actually get a yes in B2B. So that is not contact or lead focused, that is business, that is account focused. So again, how are we not just going after the right decision maker? I don't know about you, I'm busy. So like, I don't typically, unless I'm like very actively in market, which is roughly only 3% of your market in any given time. Like I'm not typically doing a lot of research, but maybe someone on my team happens to someone upon something and they bring it to me. I'm way more likely to engage because someone else on my team brought something to me. So again, thinking about, Not how I engage the CRO exclusively, but how do I make the CRO aware of us? They're probably not going to engage in an actual ad, but maybe I can make their director of sales or their director of enablement also aware of us. Maybe I can make their uh, area VP of sales aware of us. And then fantastic. We've now engaged enablement. We've engaged different levels of sales. And maybe we're putting on some events for their actual end users, their account executives. they are like, this thing is awesome. I would love to get more involved with Sales Assembly. So at all different levels of the organization, we're building affinity towards our brand so that when Sales Assembly comes up, they're like, oh yeah, we know that company. They're pretty cool. I'd be interested in buying from them. So again, it's not just how do I go up to the CRO. You're never going to break through unless you're in the act of 3%.
1: Yeah, the chief, the chief mark, the chief officer of whatever, is always going to be the busiest, and there aren't as many of them as the practitioners. No matter how you're looking at it, whether you're looking at sales, marketing, CISOs, IT, whatever the case may be, in terms of an or, you know, top down org, the chief of X is always going to be much harder to engage with because there's less of them, they're far busier and they're getting hounded. So using an account-based approach, like you're talking about Mason, in terms of looking at the full stack of all the folks and not just in the stack, because I love what you said about the CF no, oh gosh. Yes, like how are you going to convince a chief financial officer That's weird. A chief financial officer that this is okay to buy and it's going to generate revenue in the long run. Like if you can get them to agree that everybody else will be good, right? So I love what you're saying about, you know, activating the full stack and looking outside in terms of what other Service, you know what other pieces within the organization you're going to need to get buy-in from. Lawyers are another one. more are they fun? What do you get us? <laughs> you slide a scope of work across their their desk. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so I I think in terms of when we're talking about accounts, we're not just talking about. It's twofold, right, Mason? It's what brands and companies do you want to work with first, and then the second is. Of those brands and companies you want to work with, who within those companies do you need to make their lives easier? All with and not just the one person, the CR, like you mentioned, but all the roles and responsibilities. How are you going to make all those roles do a better job within the organization? Let's talk about the brand, like the accounts from a company standpoint for a second, because I think it's really hard to sort of identify like how niche and nitty gritty do you need to get, or do you want to sort of try and like throw a big net? Like how do you start identifying who you want to be talking to from the company side before you get into the nitty gritty side?
0: It's a great question. Um, It's the constant question of what's our ICP. So ICP being IDO client profile currently um you know i've got a a good friend in another tech company that's like there just literally is not a technology that exists and i don't know if you guys are familiar with gtm partners they're they're an analyst firm and when it comes to the icp there is not any like single technology like there are technologies that try but there's not any single technology that can definitively say like this is your icp that exists today um Maybe there's some new tech startup that like happened in the past month and a half that I'm not aware of, but from my, from, not that I'm aware. from July, <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, so the way in which you define your IDO client profile is through extensive internal conversations and you would look at your close one opportunities. You'd also look at your close lost opportunities to figure out like why you lost those opportunities. Cause the thing that a lot of people don't talk about with their ICP is negative attributes. So like what is something that discounts someone from actually being a good fit? Um, we only typically focus on the positive attributes. So, and I'll even, when I talk about attributes, there's a variety of things that you can look at. So um, the most standard that people are looking at would be firmographic. So it's looking at your location, your revenue amount, the number of employees, like the department
1: head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Industry,
0: those kinds of things. Um, what's less looked at would be things like psychographics. So, um, or technographics, which technographics is a fancy way of saying, like, what technology do they use? So for me, I prefer, and this is, may offend some people, like, as I've done freelance projects or when I was agency side, preferred to work with people that were in the HubSpot ecosystem as opposed to the Salesforce ecosystem, because HubSpot attracts a specific kind of culture. And I enjoyed working with that kind of culture. Sorry for anybody that's on Salesforce or Salesforce love, like, that's just Different a personal mindset. preference. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, like there's something that technographics can actually tell you as well based on like where they're prioritizing. So another example would be if they don't have a gifting platform, period, um, it may be that it's not been a priority, they haven't been focused on gifting, or it could also be an indication, sorry to be so blunt, that they don't have a scalable way of appreciating their customers. So maybe customer retention and customer appreciation isn't as much of a focus. That can be an indication for something. So again, just from that perspective overall, looking at all those different tiers of firmographic, technographic, psychographics to understand more deeply, like who is our ideal client profile. Um, The other things to look at just to get really, really nitty gritty would just be NPS scores and customer engagement. So if you see specific kinds of customers that are always happy, they're always engaged, those are the right things. And then also uh, this is where you get finance involved and they're really happy is looking at profitability of your clients. So again, if there's specific clients that are happy, take less time, are raving fans, and there's a consistency within those cohorts, then those would be the best kinds of customers to go after. So that's like all retroactive. There is also then the idea of moving into a different industry or a different market. So that's a great use for an account-based program. So if they'll simply, we're exploring a different vertical, for example, and focusing potentially on um specific industry verticals as opposed to B2B scale up. So Again, there, we'll run some campaigns, we'll run some experiments on those different industries to see, do they resonate? Do they buy more quickly? Is there a higher deal value? Like, And looking at those specific things to then prove, oh, our ICP is actually different. So again, that's why I, I say it's it's twofold. It's looking at historical data. It's looking at, again, the understanding of why these customers are so successful, while also then looking at the market trends to see, is there another opportunity if we were to go into a different vertical, a different industry, a different um tech stack so that's the uh, i didn't use the words it depends like i normally do so i'm proud of that but that was my long-winded it
1: depends no i think that's a a great way and i do want to move on from like identifying your account but one thing i want to say um that you mentioned is i had it and it's gone because i was hanging on your every word so we'll come back to it Um, so we've identified our accounts. We've gotten really nitty gritty on it. Oh, that's what I wanted to ask. You mentioned moving industries or moving into another category that maybe you, your your current ICP or your current customers aren't leaning. At what point do you sort of make that leap? Like, is it because you've tapped out or your profits gone flat? Like, why would you dabble in something that hasn't been proven?
0: Uh, It depends. So... (laughs) it could be that yes you've tapped out so uh, a lot of especially early stage organizations they are relationship led so Mm -hmm. from that perspective the buyers are typically people that aren't actually buying necessarily because of the organizational brand but they're buying because of the founder brand so to put it bluntly like a lot of your early customers might have been customers out of convenience not out of actual product market fit to put like i hate to say that directly um but it may be something that oh we are seeing after a couple of years what we thought was our icp um we're actually seeing a decrease in our customer retention rates we're seeing a decrease in our profitability we're seeing any number of things so from that perspective um there could be an opportunity to really dive more deeply into oh we're experimenting with this new market they're buying more quickly they have an increased deal value probably a good opportunity to go after that industry. So again, it's just looking at your current uh, go-to-market maturity and then figuring out the best next steps.
1: Yeah. No, I love that. Um, Let's talk about, so we have our ICP, talk about customer journey, right? So like it's all well and good. This idea of if you build it, they will come concept is no longer. Um, That it's a deal of the nineties when we could, keyword stuff till uh, we were below the face, um, which is no more. So we have we have our ideal customer. Now, how do we thoughtfully, because the journey has definitely changed in terms of how buyers want to engage with a brand. Um, it's on their terms, folks. So if you think that you have the upper hand, uh, the, the game has changed. Yes. Um, so talk me through with Scrappy ABM, how you start to activate that audience in a really intentional way?
0: So there's a variety of ways in which you can do that. Um, I think one of the more, I wouldn't say more common, but is now starting, I think, to pick up some level of steam uh, would be a podcast. The booking rates around a podcast are typically upwards, again, if you have an established podcast, Um, maybe not on your first episode, but once you have an established podcast going, your booking rates are typically upwards of potentially 80%. When you do an outreach to somebody and saying hey i'd love for you to be on our podcast so again that's a way that you can build a one-to-one relationship with a potential best fit customer so again I, i'm seeing an increase of more people doing that it seems to be working um so that's again i think that transcends various industries another approach that i really really love that i don't see a lot of people talking about is um th- there are a lot of communities that exist many of which are free but that's not where you're actually going to get the value So identifying, are there specific paid micro communities that my best fit customers are a part of? And how do I become an active member of that community and specifically add value? Because that essentially becomes an exclusive channel through which you can do one-to-one outreach and one-to-one engagement. So again, from personally, when I was agency side, I'm getting involved in marketing communities that were not massively expensive, but like 10, 20 bucks a month. And we ended up closing four deals at a hundred to $50,000 annual contract value that is literally over a hundred X ROI. So again, just from that perspective of where are my best fit customers? And again, we hear this all the time in like a theory of like, go where your customers are hanging out, like go post on LinkedIn, but like, are you actually going to where your customers are hanging out in like micro communities? So again, that's a scrappy play. Um, we're seeing a rise on micro events as well. It's like hosting a dinner, hosting a lunch. And it doesn't have to be even all that fancy. Like what I've seen really successful marketers and sellers do, and I started to do this in Indianapolis, not with the intent even to sell, but just to get to know my local community of B2B tech people. But I'd be lying if I had, if there weren't any conversations actually started out of 20 people coming together just to get lunch with the context being we're getting together because we're in the same professional environment. So again, overall, it it is just truly getting a little bit creative and thinking through, I, don't, I maybe don't have a ton of money. I maybe don't have um, all this bandwidth. So how do I make the most with what I have with the intent that I will build relationships with my best fit customers, add value to them, and ev- inevitably invite them into a conversation where it doesn't feel salesy, but it feels like, this is the next logical step in our relationship.
1: Let's break these down because they're all very interesting approaches. They are on, I would argue, having done some of these, that while cost effective, they you get more out that you put in time-wise. So, from a podcasting standpoint, in my experience, totally agree. Case in point, right? So like I host a podcast. I just posted on LinkedIn today about this, where we're running basically what my business partner, if you watch Ted Lasso, if you don't, even if you don't like soccer, football, whatever, it's still from a leadership standpoint, amazing lessons, highly recommend it. But in the show at the very end of the season, there's this play they call Total Football. And they have a player in the middle, instead of moving the ball down the field from player to player to next player to next player to score a goal, they have one player that's in control, who sees the field, knows their players, knows their strong suits, see who's open and can make a move in the moment. And so a podcast is a great way to sort of play total football, total marketing, where you get to create these engagements in these relationships that won't always be a one-to-one sales relationship. I've actually made more friends through podcasting that then refer me through knowing that we're a great fit to help them from a marketing standpoint, right? So if you're gonna do podcasting, in my experience, it's just having that to your point, like that open mind of like, this isn't talk about dark funnel, right like this isn't going to be a one to one i'm going to have a conversation and they're going to convert to sales and then we're going to start working with them that's maybe happened twice in my whole time podcasting that's not to say that that's all the sales i've closed it's just in that one to one engagement i've done this for four years you've been doing this for a long time as well um so talk to me about your experience in podcasting and how you've been able to cultivate those relationships and how that's netted out for you.
0: Yeah, it's been interesting. Because um, I, for about two years, hosted a marketing careers focused podcast while I worked at an agency. Um, so again, what I did through that podcast was build. And I, I want to be very clear. In retrospect, this was an incredible play. On the fourth thought, I literally just wanted to build a career focused podcast. Like there was no... This wasn't even a part of my day job. Like it was a hobby for me if I'm being really direct. Um, But what I ended up doing was, again, inviting our target accounts onto a podcast. And when I look at a job posting, all it is is somebody saying, like, I have a problem and I need help. So, again, essentially, we would focus on their career path and how they got to where they are today, which then as a potential seller... Gives me a lot of understanding of where are their strong suits, where do they deeply understand marketing, where potentially their weak points. Because I understand the ways in which they grew up in marketing over the next past twenty years, and where else are you going to get firsthand understanding of someone's entire career journey? At the end, we then talk through the roles that they're actively hiring for, and they talk through the growth trajectory of their company and where they're planning to make investments. So from there, I had really intimate knowledge of their business and them. But I didn't sell them. What I did is I helped them land people in their organization. And what ended up happening was two things. One, the leader that I interviewed liked me because I helped them find talent. Two, the person that landed in that job liked me because I helped them find a job. So I had two internal evangelists for Mason Cosby, the human being, one of which was a decision maker, one of which was either a key influencer or an end user of whatever I would be selling, which at that time was marketing services. From there, Whenever they would be hiring, once a month, I would promote them. And it was a way that I, without asking for anything in return, stayed top of mind and front of mind for the decision makers at my best fit customers. And eventually, and that's the problem, it's eventually. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you exactly when. I don't have intent data because it's scrappy. But eventually, what happened is people that needed support and help They didn't even actually come to me to buy agency services. They just knew that I was well-connected. And they said, hey, Mason, I'm struggling with this, this, and this. Do you know anybody that can help? And I would say, yeah, me. So that's how we ended up actually closing over a million dollars out of the marketing ladder, which again, was a hobby that cost me $32 a month and had nothing to do with the actual business. I built genuine relationships with my best fit customers and helped them without asking for anything in return.
1: And that is exactly what my post is all about, right? Like it's becoming that that circle of influence, that middle person that's just well-connected, that can help people get to the right thing that they need to solve the problem that they're having is exactly where people need to be to, to close that million dollars. On the flip side, in my experience, and it depends on what tech stack and what avenue you choose but it can take time so it's 32 dollars a month towards the tools but in terms of your time what was the investment there
0: um you know when i first started i would do a 15 to 30 minute call as a prep call but eventually i got to the point where i could send it in an email that was primarily templatized and so scheduling was automated um I literally just would reach out to people and say, "Hey, I'm hired, or it Looks like you're hiring. Would you be interested to come on a podcast to promote the roles that you're hiring for?" So I had like a 95% acceptance right on that front. Um, and then from there, you know, it was an hour long interview. So four hours a month, plus we'll add in an extra hour for interviewing, or sorry, for scheduling and email and comms and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, it was an additional five hours a month. That again, over the long term resulted in a million dollars in close one revenue um, that was directly attributable, not to mention the overall brand goodwill. And I hate to put it this bluntly, but like nobody knew I was three years ago. like didn't exist. So the podcast not only resulted in immediate close one revenue through my own show, but it resulted in me getting interviewed on other podcasts and uh, resulted in me growing a following on LinkedIn that has now delivered additional revenue that has resulted in me getting in-person speaking engagements that People now think I'm like, I've won awards for thought leadership and three years ago it didn't exist. So it's not just the podcast, and the director of Revenue. It is the overall, everything else that comes out of it. That I think is why, from my perspective, a podcast is one of the best scrappy ABM plays that you can run.
1: It's the consistency too. Like you said, you did it every week. And this was the play that you ran. And I love how focused you were, too. Mine's been a bit of an evolution. Like, I initially, to get started, just wanted to talk to people I knew that were doing interesting creative marketing things. And then I doubled down on my ICP later on. Um, But until this year where I've gone live and I've gotten consistent about it, uh, which actually, fun fact, I don't know how that, did you ever not, like, did you ever just do recordings or have you always been, you always did them live, didn't you?
0: Yeah, the very first one was live. Um, and just from my perspective, I figured two things, one, doing it live makes it easier in post editing because people are typically on and they don't make as many mistakes. And they're not like, Oh, I hated that. Can we rerun it that? And then two, uh, because it was a time investment, I wanted to maximize the time investment. So I figured this will count as a LinkedIn post for the day and people may tune in and if they don't totally fine, but it, it's almost a guaranteed notification to my network that I'm doing something and it's a way to stay top of mind. So from my perspective, uh, I think I only did two that were not live. The rest of them were, were live streamed.
1: So two things I learned, I've done it both ways now. One is going live doubled my audience pretty much immediately. Wild. And the second thing is to your point, 100% is completely reduced my post-production because I now do my intro and outro while I'm hanging out versus trying to do that later um, I'm more on point, got my questions ready. I'm a little bit more buttoned up. Um, it's now giving my team time to do, uh, clips and things that like the market is now asking for versus before of long form. So live wild. Yes. I'm in agreement. Let's talk about, I'm looking at time. I'm trying to be cognizant, but also you mentioned two other things that are scrappy ABM moves that feel scrappy in terms of money, but not necessarily in terms of time. So community. Um, spending a little bit to find your niche communities of where people hang out. I've struggled with this because in terms of being authentic to those communities and not looking like I'm just being a snooper, um, I haven't actually been able to get into the communities that I want to get into. So like one of my industries is cybersecurity and there's a cybersecurity marketing industry, marketing society, and they don't let vendors in and good on them. I totally agree with it. I'm for it, but also like, I as a vendor, I can access it. So what's sort of the balance in that of like, not wanting to be a creepy salesperson who's just snooping for the next deal, but like showing up and really caring and getting in there.
0: Uh, first, you just mentioned it, but it's actually caring. So like um, in these communities, I actually care about the success of other people. And if they ever buy from me, fantastic. But if not, that's okay. Um, I know that the long-term net benefit of being a helpful individual in the communities where I thrive is going to only pay dividends in the long run. So again, I know that that's a long run thing. Um, so I'll be honest, like these plays that we're talking about are not necessarily like the sales activation plays that I was referencing earlier. Like we can talk through some of those as well real quick, but it is genuinely caring about the success of the people in the community, and you can't fake that. So, from that perspective, if you're only joining because you're like, "Oh, perfect, a pool of my potential customers," like you're probably not going to do well. You're probably going to get kicked out. So that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, for any community where you can't be invited. So, for example, I, I am not able to join CMO Coffee Talk because I'm not formally a CMO. It totally makes sense. But I love CMO Coffee Talk. Lots of people in CMO Coffee Talk. So. I build relationships with people that I know are involved in CMO coffee talk. And what's been interesting is they are actually now doing referrals within CMO coffee talk without me being in the community, because I built those relationships with the people that are a part of that community. So there's that piece. And then the final thought is I've, it's been interesting. I've not been allowed in communities because I've been a vendor, but I've been allowed in to speak for specific engagements. So again, if I provided significant value to the market, I then become a valuable person to bring in to that add value to that community in a short-term way, not in a long-term ongoing way. But if you, in your case, if you like went really, really hard for six months on cybersecurity marketing on LinkedIn, you probably would get invited to speak. And that's all you talked about for six months because you become a well-known fixture within the cybersecurity space. I, became a fixture of like marketing careers for like two years. Um, I then very intentionally pivoted to Scrappy ABM. But like, I'm now having to summit, like my engagement is actually very down. My follower increase is very down because I've now actually pivoted what I talk about. But a year and a half from now, I'll be synonymous with Scrappy ABM. That's great. That's what I want. So from that perspective, it's going to, it's just putting in the reps and the time to become synonymous with a specific industry or term. And as a result, these communities will invite you to speak.
1: I will say that I've had a ton of folks from the cybersecurity marketing society on my show. You can go check out, they have amazing content um, around how to market to cybersecurity specifically. And then we actually just got a fresh referral through the community without having not been in the community. So yes to that. It's put to everything we're saying though, like being scrappy is one thing, but you have to one, I'm gonna curse, but I think it's I think it's warranted. Give a shit, literally, about who you're really wanting to help. And showing up for them with not expecting anything in return, sort of that pay it forward mentality, and then um, inconsistently, and then doubling down on the things you really care about, how you want to help those folks. So both of those things have warranted how both the podcasting and the community can help in that. And hey, if you can do both, even better. Let's talk about the micro events, because this is coming up more and more. Um, and I think it's something, especially if you're in a local community or you're within a sphere where you can actually bring people together physically has seen tremendous uptick. I just had somebody on my show from the company Drata, and he hosted his own event for the company that went spectacular for this reason. So in your experience, Mason, how have you seen micro events be a scrappy ABM method and and work for you?
0: Yeah. So for starters, uh, what's the intent? So is it, we're going to do pipe conversion, we're going to do pipeline acceleration, or we want to do an awareness play. So I don't know if you have seen LinkedIn. There was a an event that was called House of Aligned. So the company aligned. Mm-hmm. And those guys are great. Yep. They essentially got like, I think it was 20 different influencers in the B2B tech space to come together for like a few days. And essentially, they just created the greatest sense of FOMO and co-created content with a bunch Ever. of people that they will then use <laughs> over the next six months. So their play actually right. wasn't to sell anybody at the event. It was hey, look at how cool and awesome we are. You should work with us and we're going to now have content for the months. So like that is a totally viable play that will pay dividends in the long run. If it's pipe gin, um, what we're actually finding is interesting to think through for Sales Assembly, because Sales Assembly actually does host micro events and dinners across the country pretty much every single month. So like we had a CS dinner, customer success dinner last night in Chicago. Um, for us, our, our dinners are actually typically more of a pipeline acceleration play. So people already know that Sales Assembly exists. They're already actively in the conversation. This is the way that we can have another touch point to get them to continue in the conversation. So from that perspective, we use the upfront invitation to the event to get them to say yes. And then we follow up and say like, Hey, before we hop on or before we go to dinner, would you be interested in like hopping on a quick call just to like get to know each other and we can introduce you at the dinner to other people. Great. Um, what's been most interesting would be happy hours at conferences. So we hosted a happy hour at Saster last night. Apparently had like 150 CROs and VPs of sales come to this happy hour. And I've heard from our sales team that it was the most successful event that we've done all year because you got 150 of your best fit customers to come hang out with you for five hours and like just have a good time. And then what happens is, for example, our CRO's name is Matt Green. He's got like 19,000 followers on LinkedIn. People are like, I see you all the time. I'm like, what do you do? And he gets to then pitch them because he was invited to pitch them. And people are like, oh, that's cool. I need that. Cool. And then it, so it's become that these micro events at larger events have actually become a great pipe gen opportunity. So again, it just depends on the intent of what you're trying to accomplish. Now, if you're a small marketer in a local area, I would focus on these as networking opportunities with the intent that you would inevitably create pipeline, but it's not going to happen on the first lunch or dinner. It's probably going to happen on the fourth. And again, I wouldn't even put it on the company dime. I would just go have lunch with people in your local community because worst thing that happens is you make some friends. Darn.
1: Yes, connection. I think we're all starving for that these days. And these are three great ways to not only create pipeline and revenue for your company in the long run, but they're also great ways to form connections that will carry you beyond this one job in this one moment. I feel like that's the real takeaway. And you are a living, breathing example of that, Mason. I'm so grateful for this conversation where can people find you if they want to learn more about scrappy abm
0: uh well first linkedin is kind of where i spend a lot of my time um second if you want to learn more about the concept of scrappy abm i also do have a podcast that is lovingly titled scrappy abm Uh, i did take a break because i had a child so uh more episodes will be coming uh towards the end of this month but we've got 20 episodes out already Uh, and then lastly I i would be remiss if i didn't mention specifically sales assembly so again Like if you're a B2B tech company that's in that scale up stage, looking to better up-level your team, that's what we do. And I'd be happy to get you connected to the right people to talk further about that.
1: Amazing. Before we go, I do like to ask you my people first question, because you are more than a seller and a marketer. Um, In the last few years, given the change of the world, and I know you said baby girl, so you can't use this as your answer because that would defeat the purpose. But have you picked up any other new hobbies than being a girl dad in the last few years given the change of the world?
0: Loophole. I became a husband in 2020. <laughs> so.
1: Wow. In COVID, you got married.
0: Yep. That's a whole other story in and of itself.
1: But you went, but you you hung in there, and you decided to not push it, and you doubled down, and you made it happen. Mm-hmm. Was it remote? Was it just immediate family? Give me something. It's
0: like hundred people. We were in Mississippi. Nobody cared. It's great. <laughs> Fair
1: <laughs> enough. But ah. Oh. Mason, this was amazing. I'm so grateful. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for listening and for tuning in to all those out there. If you uh, found this episode helpful, please like, subscribe, and share. This episode is brought to you by MKG Marketing, our agency that accelerates the mission of cybersecurity and B2B tech brands via SEO, digital ads, and analytics. It's hosted by me, Carrie Gard, CEO and co-founder of MKG Marketing. Music, mix, and mastering done by Austin Ellison. If you'd like to be a guest, please visit mkgmarketing.com to apply. Mason. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scrappy ABM. If you enjoyed this week's episode, go ahead and give us a follow so that you don't miss a single episode. We drop every single Monday so that you can start your week off right. And if you're looking for additional great content, just like this, go check out ScrappyABM.com. We're building a library of frameworks, guides, templates, processes, and tools. So you have everything that you need to build a low budget, high impact Scrappy program. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of Scrappy ABM. This has been your host, Mason Cosby, and we look forward to seeing you in the next one.